0: That's BlueNile.com.
1: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving and had a chance to catch up on the new episodes we've been putting out. I've been getting some really positive feedback on our conversations with Whitney Cummings and Mike Birbiglia. So if you've enjoyed those episodes, it would mean a ton to me if you would take just a few seconds to let us know by leaving a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. So those two comedians were first on this podcast during our very first run of episodes back in 2019. But today's guest is someone I have wanted to have on from the beginning. So I'm glad we finally made it happen for this week. It's quite possible you don't know Larry Charles' name, or for that matter, his face, but you most certainly know his work. From starting out as a writer on Seinfeld, to directing the original Borat and Bruno movies with Sasha Baron Cohen, to continuing his close collaboration with Larry David on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and so much more, Larry has been almost like a Forrest Gump figure, helping to create some of the absolute funniest comedy of the past 40 or so years. And his latest film as a director just might be his most audacious yet, which is saying a lot for a man who choreographed the naked fight scene in Borat. I'm talking, of course, about Dick's The Musical, which is a completely batshit adaptation of a show called Fucking Identical Twins, written by and starring Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson, that started its life at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York nearly a decade ago. To round out the cast, Larry helped bring in notable names like SNL's Bowen Yang, Megan Thee Stallion, Megan Mullally, and previous Last Laugh guest Nathan Lane, who, in this clip, introduces both his character and a pair of disgusting puppets called the Sewer Boys that kind of steal the whole movie.
2: <sighs> I'm gay.
0: What the fuck, Dad? You're gay?
2: Well, I was hoping for a little more enthusiasm, but yes, Craig, I'm gay. Queer is a three-dollar bill and just as thin. Uh, I wake up, drink my coffee, have brunch around 11, walk my on Frise, then nap till half past seven. A night out at the symphony, such elegance, what poise! Or maybe I'll just stay at home with my two sewer boys. What? The answer is perfectly clear. It's a gay old life, being queer. I'm so sorry, did you say sewer boys? You know my sewer boys? (laughs) Those things are dangerous! There's nothing dangerous about vacationing in Spain. That is until you've thrown half of your savings down the drain. But money should be spent on things both lovely and refined. The sewer boys drink blood for fun and also read my mind.
1: That should help you get the idea, or maybe nothing could help you get the idea, but that's the beauty of this truly deranged film. Larry and I talked about why this was the script that got him to return to directing after swearing off Hollywood. He also shared more than ever before about his falling out with Larry David over a documentary project that was scrapped by HBO at the very last minute, plus stories about Sacha Baron Cohen, Kanye West, Bill Maher, and so much more. Here's me with Larry Charles. Larry, I was uh, it's so great to see you. I was looking back. I realized it's been almost five years since we, we met uh, for coffee in LA for a, a piece that I wrote about you for the Daily Beast. Um, it doesn't feel like it's been that long, but a lot has happened since, obviously. Um, it was just before we launched this podcast, actually, and, and I've wanted to have you on uh, since then, so I'm so glad that we're finally getting to do it.
0: Thank you. It's great to talk to you again.
1: Um, I remember when we met that time you had been saying that you were kind of giving up on directing uh, commercial narrative films. You were promoting a, a documentary project. Um, now we're we're talking on the occasion of uh, Dicks the Musical. So what changed?
0: Well, I think this proves that. Um, <laughs> this is hardly a commercial mainstream vehicle. It is a uh, It's something that appealed to me um, because it was so unique, so original so um, out of the box. uh, And and that is what I was looking for. It was a truly transgressive piece that somehow was still entertaining, you know, and that's a very unusual juxtaposition that really attracts me.
1: On first glance, this felt like a little bit out of the box for you um, compared to some of your other work. Um, Does it feel like a a departure uh, compared to to other things that you've done? Or or does it feel like in in line with, with your other work in some way?
0: I think my sensibility comes through in everything I've done, Um, whether you, you know, it's kind of somehow coded, obviously, in a movie like this, it's not autobiographical, but it represents a lot of things I'm interested in experimenting with artistically, cinematically, personally, uh, you know, politically, uh, socially, on all these different levels. I'm looking for things that challenge the status quo, that question reality, um, that have fun with the form, uh, all those things at once, and Dick's just, which was originally called fucking identical twins, uh, yes. um, w- <laughs> was was indeed that uh, that piece of material that I couldn't turn away from it. I couldn't I couldn't ignore it. I had to. I knew that I was the person that had been anointed. To bring this <laughs> to the promised land, you know.
1: Did they, did the the two writers and stars, did they come to you, um, to did they did they pitch you on it, or how did that how did it actually come to you as a project?
0: They had asked uh, through my agent. They had asked for me to read a, a, a draft that they had done of the original UCB show that they had done, and I read the draft, and it was the funniest thing I had read in years. I mean, comparable to the first time I read a Seinfeld script before it was a show or comparable to, you know, seeing the first Borat stuff. You know, that this was a, as funny and as unique and original and a distinctive voice uh, as anything I had been uh, personally exposed to. So uh, that that got me very excited.
1: And then, what was the what were those initial conversations with them about? Sort of what they wanted it to be, or what you felt like you could bring to it. Um, the musical element was obviously new for you.
0: Yeah, although I've done you know I, I've done this Bob Dylan movie, which had a lot of music. I we've done even with even with Sasha, we've done musical pieces in some of the movies. They didn't all make they didn't all make it into the movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, they're around somewhere, I suppose. But so yeah this was a new experience but it was still um, logistically it was it was rather simple you know you it was it was more a question of budget and schedule those were the challenges really more than the cinematic challenges i relished and I, and i and i was you know very very uh, motivated to solve the cinematic problems of a very low budget very short scheduled movie I thought that would be very exhilarating, and it was, and I think that energy uh, exudes on the screen. I think you feel the energy and the spontaneity of the way this movie was made as part of the appeal of the movie itself.
1: Was there a specific scene or sequence or something that was the most challenging for you as a, as a director or sort of something you hadn't done before? Well, the Sewer
0: Boys were um, working with puppets. I, I've worked with a lot of, you know, I've worked with animals, I've worked with a lot of weird stuff, but I, I hadn't done anything with puppets, and it's, um, it's an interesting craft, uh, which I really got into, and I was excited about the idea of it, and, but it was challenging because it was new. It was new for them, for the puppeteers to be doing this kind of stuff. You know, you're usually doing Bob Baker marionette shows, <laughs> very nice stuff for kids. That's what they mainly do. And here, this was like a very different vibe, but they were great. They were artists as well, the puppeteers. So I enjoyed collaborating with them uh, in the same way that I would with the actors or the writers. And also, let me just say that the first thing that Aaron and I, the Aaron and Josh and I talked about, I saw the UCB show after I read the script and saw them play all the roles. So the first thing I said is you two have to be the stars of the movie. There had been discussion about having straight guys play it or, you know, more celebrity type people play it. And I knew that these two guys had to be the guys to do it. So that was our first conversation, actually.
1: Yeah, having like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck wouldn't have worked uh, quite as well. It
0: would have been a very different <laughs> a very different movie. Yes, yes, exactly. This is crazy, right? Totally crazy. I mean, what are the odds of working with your long-lost twin? I don't
2: know, one in four, three in four? It's crazy. Crazy. But wait. I can't believe mom and dad split us up. Like,
0: is that abuse? Did they abuse us? We definitely experienced abusement. Oh my I mean, don't get me wrong, my life is awesome. No, no,
2: no, no, mine mine, mine, mine is awesome too. I have an amazing job. Amazing job.
0: Always dating some big lady. Stunning big ladies. I always get the things I want, except for a real family.
1: Single-parent homes are not real families, that's true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do we do? The Sewer Boys, I think, despite having names like uh, Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally in the film, are kind of the Sewer Boys have emerged as the uh, the breakout stars in some ways. Uh, They're they're getting a lot of attention. Um, There's a great. you know, I don't want to spoil the the very end of the movie, but there are some some bloopers that we see at the end, uh, including one in which uh, Nathan Lane is chewing up ham and trying to spit it in the mouths of these puppets. And we hear your uh, your voice in the background kind of, you know, encouraging him along. So what yeah. was what was it like working with him specifically, um, you know, and, and the puppets? Because he's described it. As a, perhaps the most humiliating moment of his career, uh, you know, lovingly. But but what what was it like for you?
0: And I said I was I was weirdly proud of that. Um, <laughs> you know, I I said to him, you know, you you're such a great actor. You know, you're an American treasure. You know, you've been in like the Ice Band cometh. You've been in Angels in America. I just hope your obituary doesn't start with fed the sewer boys. You know, that would be <laughs> a, after that legacy to have it begin with the sewer boys might be a little embarrassing, but. Nathan is an amazingly resourceful actor, and he wants to get things right. He has an exacting standard for himself. And and here I was throwing him into the unknown a little bit. There was an uncertainty to it. It wasn't like blocking a stage play. I wanted there to be a looseness and an interaction and a kind of almost a humanity between him and the Sewer Boys that could only be manufactured by letting them play a little bit and, like... Loosening up the strings on both of them, the puppets and Nathan, you know, and so slowly over the course of the hours that we worked on it, he eventually, you know, he devotes himself, he dedicates himself and he wants to get it right. Even the spitting, he's, (laughs) he's, he's questioning, he's like, are you sure you want me to do this? But I've had lots of actors say to me, are you sure you want me to do this? You know, and my answer is always, yes. I wouldn't ask you if I didn't want you to do it. I remember Azamat you know, uh, in Borat, when we were doing the naked fight, he was like, do you really you, you really want me to be naked? And it's like, yes, you have to be naked, you know. So these are things that you have to you have to sort of talk actors into, but they are so beautiful about it that they take the leap with you because they trust you, and you don't want to betray that trust. That's an important relationship in the movie. Between the actor and the director. There's
1: definitely, that's one place where the through line of your career from the, the naked fight to some of the outrageous things in, in this movie. Um, that naked fight scene, I have to tell you, comes up more than anything else when I ask uh, comedians and other people, you know, about the things that have made them laugh the hardest uh, in their in their life or things on screen that they loved. Um, and I know that's true for me as well. Like I, I still remember, you know, how hard I laughed in the theater the first time I saw that, but yeah, so you're, you're, you're pushing these, these actors. And I think the fact that you, that you have Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally in the movie really helps as well, kind of ground it because their performances are so, are, are just, are so ridiculous, but, but they're such great actors, as you said, is Megan Mullally someone, um, she was, she was on Seinfeld, right? Did you, had you met her back then? And have you known her for that long?
0: You know, it's funny when she, when, we met uh, on the set uh, during rehearsal, she said, you know, we met before. And I said, really? And she said, <laughs> yeah, I was on Seinfeld. And I, I then remembered that she she had a relatively small role in one episode. It was the uh, Double Dip episode, which was written by Peter Melman. And, um, and she was great. And she said to me, you were very nice to me. And I was like, whoo, you yeah. know, because Dr. Bond's that could have gone really badly. Yeah, you know, you were really mean to me on the set. I'll never forget it, you know. But no, I I happened to be nice that day, thank God. And um, <laughs> she, so um, she was uh, pre, predetermined to like me, which was good. And I, she is an artist. You know, this is what I discovered about her. I knew she was talented. I knew about Will and Grace. I know she sings, but I had no idea. Josh and Aaron clued me in. She is a gay icon, first of all. No, I had no idea about that. And... The, the breadth of her talent is almost boundless, you know? And so she's truly an artist and can pull on so many different things to create a character um, that I was amazed to watch her construct that character. And, you know, at first at first blush, it was like, wow, this is like in a movie full of radical ideas, this is a very radical idea, but it, for the same reason we, me, everybody embraced it, you know? And it was amazing, it was one of a kind performance. Ah, uh, this morning, Patricia and I watched a film from the Criterion Collection, you know Patricia, of course. If you say so. <laughs> Mom, you seem so cultured. Well, I'm glad you're finally recognized. Yeah, yeah me too, it's time that someone find, uh, uh that sand. Oh my
2: God. I switched the tea and the sand again. Again? <laughs> I'm going fast.
1: I saw somewhere you described the movie as, uh, quote, anti-woke woke, and I wanted to know what, what you meant by that. What, 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 were, what were you trying to get out with that?
0: Well, you have, uh, we tell you right off the bat, these are two gay men playing straight men. And that immediately, first of all, um, makes you a co-conspirator as an audience member with the movie. You now know the secret of the movie. These guys aren't straight. So when they go off, you know, saying these toxic, male, horrifying, repulsive, crazy things, and their language, by the way, is so unique and original that virtually every line is a joke. You can't absorb it all. But just the way they speak is very, very funny and original. But you know right off the bat that this is a, a joke on a joke. So it is. It is two men who are very, very sensitive to the issues of the day, making fun of it through the use of playing these straight characters. It's what they call straight camp, you know, and that's essentially gives us permission to make fun of things that we might normally not be able to do with uh, straight guys playing those roles.
1: It reminded me a little bit of Borat in the sense of, that you know the character of borat would say these outrageous things and and you know throw the jew down the well and all these all these things that then have the potential or the risk of being taken the wrong way by audience members. Um, Is there any concern about that this time? Are you worried that that people might take away the wrong message from this movie?
0: I don't like to control the audience. You know, I I feel like take away whatever message you want. You know, here's the work. You know, there's nobody standing in front of a painting at the museum going, this is what I want you to think about this painting. You know, (laughs) You're, you're supposed to, you know, be exposed to it and come up with your own thoughts about it. And I think all those thoughts could be valid and legitimate.
1: Coming up, Larry opens up about his very public rift with Larry David, and why he thinks they may never talk again. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with some of Larry Charles' many collaborators like Sasha Baron Cohen, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Nathan Lane, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Wednesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple and Spotify to let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Larry Charles. So, you know, as I said, I think the the through line of your career in a lot of ways is pushing boundaries of of what's acceptable on screen. You know, I think it's something that you've run into problems with at times. One thing that I wanted to to Bring up was uh, Seinfeld. Um, I think we talked about this a little bit when you know off the podcast when we talked before. Is the the reason why you left Seinfeld was sort of because you were trying to push the boundaries of what it could be beyond what what the show was was ready to be, maybe, and, and specifically the idea of the episode about Elaine uh, getting a gun, right?
0: Well, yeah, uh, those are kind of two separate thoughts in a way, and, and I could delineate I could delineate that for you in some way. Yes, for sure. Um, my goal has always been on Fridays on Seinfeld and anything I've worked on to try to push those boundaries, to try to introduce a transgressive element into the mix as much as I possibly can, to be as radical, to 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 you know be as bold as I possibly can. The uh, the the gun episode, the bet it's called, um, that happened not in my last season there, but maybe the season before, and. It was just another attempt by me to do an episode that was really extreme. Um, I I don't feel, as I've said since, I don't feel it was funny enough to justify it. That's one of the reasons it fell apart. And I couldn't, like Larry had done so skillfully so many times, I couldn't make an an idea like that, a premise like that, funny and light enough. It still was grim, you know, on some level. But by the time I got to, like, the the 80th show... You know, and I did the fire. I think the fire was like the last episode I did where George pushes past all the kids to get out of the fire. Instead of castigating me, you should all be thanking me. What kind of a topsy-turvy world do we live in where where heroes are cast as villains?
2: Brave men as cowards.
1: But I saw you push the women and children out of the way in a mad panic. I saw you knock them down. And when you ran out, you left everyone behind.
0: Seemingly. Seemingly. To the untrained eye, I can fully understand how you got that impression. What looked like pushing, what looked like knocking down, was a safety precaution. In a fire, you stay close to the ground, am I right? Uh-oh. <laughs> and when I ran out that door, I was not leaving anyone behind. Oh! Quite the contrary. I risked my life making sure that exit was clear. any other questions how do you live with yourself it's not easy I love that episode but I felt like I was reaching the end of my creative peak with those characters like it's it wasn't coming organically to me to do more George stories, more Kramer stories more Jerry stories, more Elaine stories I start. my mind was like you know, sort of bursting with other stuff that I wanted to experiment with. And I'm the kind of person that rolls the dice. I'm a gambler and I don't do things for career. You know, I I could have stayed at Seinfeld to the end, but I wanted to do other stuff, including direct. And um, so I felt like if I didn't make this move now, I would let that, that sort of ship sail by and I didn't want to do that. So I left Seinfeld, even though things were great there and I had a very cushy position, you know, I felt like i had also hit the wall. I hit that George Harrison like wall where I had a lot of songs and I couldn't get them on the albums, you know?
1: Um, I mean, I wonder if how much of that had to do with it being a network show as even as out there as so many of uh, so much of Seinfeld is that 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 limitation. And as you know, I think you're sort of alluding to like something like the contest where Larry David was able to Take something, put something like masturbation on network TV, which had never been done before, um, but do it in a way that was safe enough for the network to be okay with. Um, but maybe did you kind of get sick of of having to ride that line of of having to deal with the censors and and not being able to be as out there as maybe you wanted to be?
0: You know, I think on some level, yes, but I I deal with that even today. I mean, even on on this movie, you're still you know talking to people, producers, and studios about certain choices that are extreme it's hard
1: to believe what could have been left out on the cutting room floor of this one but
0: <laughs> <laughs> there there isn't much i have to say but in terms of seinfeld i also was like i felt very limited by the um the sitcom the four camera sitcom live audience thing i i, I wanted to expand visually and like i did episodes like the airport or the trip you know where they're really on location to a large degree and I and the subway I started to get more excited about that potential and I wanted to explore that more as well.
1: How did how did Kirby enthusiasm fit into that? Did you feel like that was a chance to uh to spread your wings a little bit? I mean it's not the it's it's sort of a more documentary style in a way. It's it's obviously on location, not a not a um four camera sitcom. Did that give you more freedom to experiment?
0: Well, Once again, I mean, just like reading the first Seinfelds, I knew as soon as I saw, I was like in the curb pilot, you know, and I played myself in a little talking head moment. But when I saw it, when I saw the pilot, which was not, they call it a pilot now, it was not a pilot, it was just a one-off at the
1: time. It was kind of a special, yeah. It
0: was a special. And I thought, wow, like I felt about Seinfeld, like I felt about Barat. I felt like this is one of a kind, There's nothing like this. And, you know, Larry David is, you know, the reigning, probably the most impactful television thinker, you know, of the 20th century, really. When you, you know, I compare his work to any dramatic writer's work, The Sopranos, anything else, which I love, but he's right up there in that pantheon, you know, and to come up with Seinfeld and then come up with Curb, you know, that's a hard, that's a, that's a major second act that a lot of people do not achieve. So it's it's very impressive. And that's how I felt about Curb when I saw it. I was like, wow, this is the next level, you know. But I didn't think anything about it except that. I thought, oh, that'll be a cool show. Good for him. And then he said to me, You should direct one of these. And that was the that was the life changer. I was like, okay. And suddenly I was a director.
1: It's nice to hear you speak so you know so highly of him, because I know you you have had some strain in your relationship uh, of late. Um, I do have to ask about this Larry David documentary that got pulled, I think, the day before it was supposed to air on HBO that you, <laughs> yeah, that you yes. directed. You know, you hinted that he wasn't happy with it uh, for whatever reason. Is there is there more to the story there? I mean, what happened and what, how did you react when you found out that this thing that you'd been working on for, I imagine, quite a while just kind of disappeared overnight?
0: Well, you know, I think people, and I think this about all my work, I don't do it if I don't think this, but I think people would love this documentary. And I think they would see... Yeah,
1: yeah, I was looking forward to it. Yeah,
0: they would see a part of Larry that is a a part that I know personally for, like, over 40 years, you know. And we had a very intimate conversation. It it was uh, two sessions. It was, like, you know, eight hours of talking, you know, and... um, there's all the clips and connecting his ideas to his work and all that stuff was done. And it was really done well, I thought, and in a fun way. And it was, uh, it it was exciting to watch, you know, and even to make, it was really exciting. Um, his issues were, I don't think were really about the content. I think the he was extremely pleased with the content. I think he had other issues that I, I could not resolve and, Um, I think rather than him feeling comfortable saying to me, I am uncomfortable with this, um, he let it sort of in typical Larry David kind of curb fashion, he let it sort of drag on until it was almost too late and then had to, you know, make a radical move to do something about it. And, you know, I just, I was actually shooting uh, Dick's the musical at the moment when he called me. And so, you know, I kind of, I had to go back to directing the movie And, uh, you know, I also feel like it's there. If people find it someday, they'll get a chance to see it. They'll see it's a really illuminating documentary about Larry David like nobody else is going to make. You know, I'm sure there's going to be a much more mainstream version of a documentary with the usual talking head interviews. This is just me and him, you know, and his work, you know, and covering stuff that nobody even knows about because I was with him through all these uh, different major paradigm shifts in his life, you know? So hopefully one day it'll come out. It's not that our relationship is strained. I was really disappointed. Um And we just haven't really talked and we may never talk. And that's what happens also, you know, in show business, you you work with people.
1: That's, that's terrible though. Yeah. I mean, you've known him for, for 40 years. I think you, you've talked about him as sort of like the most important person in your adult life, I think is what you told me when we, we spoke um, last time, uh, so yeah, I mean
0: none of none of that changes. None of that changes. That's all all still very true, but I will say that I think for both he and I and you're quite a bit younger than me and I'm younger than him, you're going to have friends who you know for 40 years who you stop talking to for one reason or another. Not necessarily good reasons, sometimes great reasons, but it does happen. You know, it falls people fall by each other's wayside. It's a sad reality of getting old. Um so you people, you lose, you start to get, you, know, you start to have to adjust to the idea of loss. You know, loss becomes a big part of life as you, if you're lucky enough to be around to experience it.
1: Well, I, I guess you, you seem sort of resigned to the fact that there might not be a, a reconciliation, but, uh, you know, I hope that there is and that maybe there is a way for for us to see that documentary at some point, um, you know. I was. Me it's too. always Me it's too. always odd when the subject of a documentary has that much control over it um, and the ability to kill it.
0: Well, sad, sadly, sadly, um, as you know, a documentary, the form has become to a large degree, you know, puff pieces, celebrity puff pieces that are called documentaries. But the celebrity um, is sort of
1: like the executive producer, and the you know, exactly. Running but the show. This wasn't really. Right? This wasn't
0: like that. This was not like that. This I had free reign until the very end. Until you didn't. (laughs) Until I didn't. Yeah. And and that's happened to me on fiction movies as well. You know, so I'm used to the idea of like, oh shit, am I really going to get this through to the end? You know, and then having something thwart it, like on Army of One, I've had so many thwarting episodes of work that I was excited about that it's disappointing, but I also know it means I'm doing the right thing, you know?
1: Yeah. Another, uh, pilot that that didn't make it um is the uh kanye west uh sort of curb your enthusiasm-esque show that you that you worked on with him um you know that was so much has changed with him since since you did that i don't know how many years ago it was but um you know obviously he went through his whole trump phase and then his uh shocking (laughs) uh anti-semitic streak um that is maybe still going um did all of that surprise you when you, you know, as as someone who had, you know, worked pretty closely with him to see all of that, um, that side of him come out?
0: Well, first of all, when I worked with him, which is about 10 years ago, he, his mom was still alive, who was a major influence on him and kind of was his governor in terms of behavior and kept him to some degree on the straight and narrow. She was the person in his life who was the authority and she sadly, tragically, passed away, and that left him kind of unmoored, I think, to some degree. This is also when I worked with him pre-Kardashian as well. Um, So he was a very young guy. He had a great sense of humor. We loved, I loved working with him. I think we we got along well. I would consider him a friend at that time. And uh, our collaboration was great, and we spent a lot of time together during that time. And he was a guy that had a lot of self-awareness, And that was part of the key to that show was he said to me, I'm the Black Larry David. And once you hung out with him, you saw that he was constantly apologizing and he was realizing how funny it was. And that's why he thought it would be a great show. So that person doesn't seem to really be in evidence as much today. And I feel like he's gone through some shifts and changes. And like many golden gooses in show business, the people around him are not being straight with him and are not there to help him but to possibly take advantage of the situation and exploit it and um, it makes me very sad because it seems uh, like it's kind of uh, unraveled out of control where he was an artist and now he's just become a spectacle and uh, people will he'll have a hard time having people pay serious attention to his work again because of it I think. Well, yeah i mean
1: he's he's one of those people that you know I think a lot of people have have just written off um yeah you know it's yeah, hard exactly. to come back from some of the stuff that he's said and and done
0: yes it is it is yeah he's he comes off to like a coop now or like a um, someone with uh you know mental health issues. Uh, rather than a young, brilliant artist who's really forging new ground. So yeah, it's a tragedy. Definitely a tragedy in my mind. Although for him, I don't know how he feels about it at all. He may be totally cool with it. Uh
1: the other person that you've worked uh that you worked with on a project that I wanted to ask about is Bill Maher. Um he's taken a sort of turn as well in a different direction. Um, <laughs> you know, uh I I saw you um you talked a little bit about this somewhere else that he uh, approached you about doing a a religious sequel where the the religion is wokeism. Is that, uh, is that accurate? Yeah,
0: that's true. That is true. We, we did talk about that. And uh, you know, my, my feeling about it at the time and my feeling about it subsequently is that I don't feel wokeism is a religion in the same way that religion is, you know, religion is a, uh, a pervasive force in humanity and therefore, an institution that was uh, worthy of being examined satirically, wokeism is being satirized every day on The Daily Show, on Colbert, on Fallon, on Seth Myers, on Kimball. You know, it is uh, it is a daily uh, uh, thing to make fun of wokeism on all sides of the issue. You know, every podcast, every comedy podcast is basically dealing with it. So. What's the new thing to say about it? There is nothing really new about it, and it is very much a reflection of this time in America. You know, it's the wokeism is not an issue in Palestine right now. Wokeism is not an issue in the Congo right now, you know. And so it, it you know, but religion still is, and that's that's a big difference so el- to me.
1: Elevating, elevating wokeism to the level of religion as a problem is is problematic.
0: Yes, I think so. I I don't think it has the kind of uh uh um, sort of it, it's not it's not big enough. It's not big enough to encompass all the different ideas that religion does. You know.
1: Yeah, but Bill Maher obviously thinks it is big enough because it's. It's sort of his, well, his main his main thing now.
0: Well, I, th- I you know in my in my encounters with him, I don't see that public persona as much. I see a much more reasonable, thoughtful, open minded person. Um, so that's a kind of a you know kind of a dichotomy that I haven't reconciled.
1: So you know now you've been doing so much documentary stuff. Now you've done this this movie, um, Dicks the Musical. Where do you want to go next? what's your What's your next uh, thing that's that's exciting you?
0: Well, naturally I wrote a book. Oh
1: yes, of course.
0: (laughs) So I wrote a book and I guess it'll be, I don't know when it's coming out. So for Simon and Schuster, um, it's called Life is But a Joke to quote the Bob Dylan song. And um, it's a pretty extensive, comprehensive memoir of my strange journey from Trump village to talking to you today.
1: (laughs) Well, I'll look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. So what I want to do now is our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you a, a series of questions um, that we can move through, okay. uh, starting with the first piece of comedy that you remember making you laugh really hard as a kid growing up.
0: Uh, probably The Three Stooges. I was enamored of The Three Stooges. I loved the violence. I had a younger brother. I was able to practice on him. And... Uh, I think that was my first excursion into uh, comedy.
1: Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you could make other people laugh?
0: Wow. Um, my dad was the comedian in my family, so I was not the funny one. I was the guy watching going, oh, OK, I see how this works. Um, so I didn't think of myself as really funny ever. Along, th- I always felt there were people that were funnier than me, you know, but... Um, but my in my mind i knew that i had funny ideas so i was never i never felt the compulsion to be the funniest person in the room in my neighborhood growing up there were hysterical guys hilarious guys who had nothing to do with comedy at all they were just crazy characters and so i just spent most of my young life witnessing absorbing assimilating that stuff
1: i believe you started selling jokes to other comedians before you ever sort of tried to s- tell jokes on stage? Do you remember the first joke that you sold that someone bought or performed or that worked well that you, you remember thinking like, oh, I, I might have something here?
0: Uh, I used to stand in front of the comedy store with a page, a yellow page of handwritten jokes. This is pre-computer and I didn't have a typewriter even. And... When I'd see a comedian I recognized, I would stop them and go, Hey, you want to buy a joke? Like I was a drug dealer. And Jay Leno was the first person to look at a joke and go, Hey, that's a pretty funny joke. If I get a laugh on stage, I'll give you 10 bucks. And at the comedy store, you could watch through a window if you're outside, a comedian <laughs> on stage. I yeah, saw him them joke. That's right. I saw him get the laugh and he gave me the 10 bucks. So those were the those early. The joke was um, Delta, the airline run by professionals. What do they have the other ones, amateurs? You know, it was something like that, you know. (laughs) Some pretty pretty lame joke that he made much funnier than it really was.
1: Uh, Do you remember the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world and and what it was like to meet them for the first time?
0: When I was um, a teenager, I was supposed to be looking for work during the summer, and instead I ditched that and went to play basketball with my friends in Brooklyn at Trump Village, And um, while I was doing that, um, I had my sports jacket, you know, draped over the bench and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And because I was supposed to go into the city and, you know, fill out, you know, applications. My father suddenly showed up and he'd never done that before. And he was like, get in the car. And I got in the car and he didn't say a word to me. And I was like, oh, man, I'm really I can't believe I got busted. I'm in such trouble. And he drove me into Coney Island where Woody Allen was filming Annie Hall. And he just wanted me to watch Woody Allen making a movie. And so we, we stood there together at the Cyclone where he was shooting and watched Woody Allen making a movie. And I remember, you know, it was kind of a life changing event, actually. And, and, and for, for my father and, and myself and for my future vision of myself to be that close to Woody Allen, who I've never met uh, still to this day, but to see him working at his height at that time on Annie Hall, that was a very uh, seminal moment for me.
1: I often ask uh, actors and comedians about auditions, um, and I'm always curious about it from the director's side. Do you have an audition story uh, that really stands out in your memory of something that, you know, someone who really surprised you or, or went really well or something that went poorly or, or anything from any of your projects, uh, an audition story?
0: Well, you know, there are people like uh, um, Wayne Knight or J.B. Smooth who came in cold for their parts and and just blew our minds and became household names uh, after that day that they auditioned. So I remember those auditions very well. I remember weird auditions, too, like on The Dictator, F. Murray Abraham came in to read for the part that eventually Ben Kingsley played of the uncle, the evil uncle. And while he was auditioning with Sasha, I was sitting with Alec Berg, who was a writer-producer on the movie and does Barry now. We were sitting there watching the audition and they were, they were doing well and it was going okay. And suddenly, and I don't know how it happened, there was a, a pair of underwear on the floor. And Alec and I looked at each other like, "What? what's going on? Look, look, there's underwear on the floor. How did that happen? What's going on? And when the audition was over, we said, does anybody, where did this underwear come from? And F. Murray Abraham picked it up and said, oh, sorry. And he put it back in his pocket. <laughs> And we said, thank you very much, and he left. But in some ways, I think he didn't get the job because we didn't understand, (laughs) because he was great in the audition, but we we couldn't understand why he had the underwear in his pocket, and it was so perplexing that it was like it was a, a, a stumbling block to being okay with him playing the part, you know? We all thought, Sasha, too. All three of us were like, what was with the underwear? Why is he carrying <laughs> underwear in his pocket? And we never got really a sufficient answer.
1: Maybe he did. Maybe he dropped it on purpose, like he thought maybe it would help him. He, you'd remember, you know, the underwear.
0: We specu- we speculated on a lot of different scenarios, and that was one of them, you know? But I don't know if any of them were actually true or not. You know? And I don't know if it's something, is that a thing he does? You know, they used to say Jerry Lewis used to come in with a briefcase that had a tape recorder in it. And uh, and then when he would be an asshole in the meeting, he would leave, but leave the tape recorder so he could hear all the people talking about him. And then he'd come back and get the tape recorder and have the tape. You know, I don't know if this is F. F. Murray Abraham's version of that. I leave my underwear and see see what happens, you know?
1: <laughs> Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened?
0: Oh, wow. Um. Well, you know, the one that pops, I mean, there's a lot of those actually. The one that pops into my head was when we were shooting Borat and Sasha. You know, Sasha was putting himself in danger all the time. And I was the director. And I really was, when I look back on it, I go, you know, sometimes I I was a little irresponsible. I mean, he could have, you know, he was always on the brink of being killed. I mean, there was a lot in, in Borat and Bruno where he was on the, there were guns. There were like a lot of, there were bears. And in one night, it was a meaningless scene, really. But we had the idea of Borat sleeping with the bear, you know, in the van because they had no place to go. And so he and the bear sleep together in the van. And we shot that scene. It was a very simple scene to shoot, except it had the bear in it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Except that. It's just them laying together and sleeping. You know, there wasn't anything really tricky. Uh, Like, there wasn't so many of the other scenes. And at some point, as I was shooting it, I was thinking, oh, my God. Like, what if the bear just casually reaches over with his claw and fucking castrates Sasha? You know? (laughs) I mean, what is stopping this bear from doing that? You know? And I realized, oh, my God, how would I ever explain that to his family, to the studio? You know, it's like, so um, at the time, I became, like, sort of, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm letting this happen but I need the scene, and but now I look back and I realize that you know he lived, he survived. It was Borat. It worked out okay, and um, so all that stuff is very humorous to That's me a now. a
1: pretty great example of yeah,
0: almost 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 dying and not usually produces a funny um, story later on, a funny anecdote for later.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say it's a pretty great example of doing anything for the joke.
0: That's right, exactly. I've done a, I've done a few of those things with the bear. Uh, there were a lot of challenges with the bear. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we were not as careful as we could have been.
1: Well, Larry, thank you so much for doing this. It's been so great talking to you again, and um, yeah, I, I, I love everything that you do, and, and I can't wait to see what thank you do you, next. Matt. And I'm thank you, of the forward the book it, as well.
0: It was great to talk to you, and um, we'll talk again. I'm sure.
1: Well, that was so much fun, and I am going to hold Larry Charles to his word and get him back on this podcast when he releases his memoir next year. Dicks the Musical is available now to watch at home on demand, and we'll put a link to rent or buy it in the description for this episode. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on threads at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram and threads, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude. You can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat